I'm going to just read the first nine verses while you get there. It says, For what advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God, uh, for if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentile that they are all under sin. And so we're about to really kind of step into our first doctrine that you see in, in, the, in the book of Romans. Uh, and we're, we're going to cover that, and we'll speak about it more specifically, but we're just going to work our way through these first eight verses specifically uh, tonight. But as we look through these first eight verses, uh, the first thing we have to do is we've got to kind of begin by going back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 29, it says, But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. And so we go back and remember that God's emphasizing here, and he's using Paul to write this, he's emphasizing that God cares about your heart. God wants uh, what we do to be from our hearts. God so much wants us to have the right motives as we're doing what we're doing. Now, uh, many in this present generation of Christianity believe that the previous generation, and it's something I've had to deal with for years now, but that the previous generation did much of their work outwardly and therefore their work was not approved by God. They, they did it for the wrong reason. They didn't have the right motive behind what they were doing. Uh, and I've dealt with many that, you know, that, that feel this way. And it's, it's definitely true that in zeal and your humanity, you can easily get caught up in the production-based Christianity. You, can, you also can get caught up in pride and what I call pride-based Christianity, in which you perform for approval, recognition, or reward. You can do that, and, and, and it's easy. Honestly, it's easy to do that, depending on your personality. You know, that some people it's easier for than others, but you can get just motivated by the recognition. You can get motivated because of the award that you're going to get. You can get motivated for all the wrong reasons uh, to do a right thing, but in your heart, it's not doing, being done for the, for the right reason. And in chapter 2, verse 29, was trying to tell us, you know, God's, God's saying, you know, it is very important to me why you do it. Now, but here's the error that's being made uh, by those who look back at the previous generation and say, see, you're all about the recognition. You're all about, you know, you had more baptisms than somebody. You're all about that you... You, got, you won more people than somebody or your bus route was bigger than somebody or your church is bigger than somebody. But here's the error uh, today is that they say I should not do 
anything unless I feel it in my heart. This is the extreme that they've gone to. So you don't do it. Hey, look, you ought to, you know, if you don't have your heart right about it, then, then it's before God, it, it's worthless. Well, let me just help. The problem is that, that, listen, we're all human in here, right? The problem is that no one feels it in their heart all the time. I mean, anybody here you've ever gone visiting and you didn't feel like it? Okay. Anybody ever came to church and you didn't feel like it? <laughs> like right now. Uh, you know, I'm not sure I feel like it right now. I don't, you know, I don't know what it is about Wednesdays, but they're, not, they're, they're my toughest service that I ever do at any point. And I'm not sure. I think I'm just going to start sleeping to about six and then come in and preach the service. But now... Also, another problem is that somehow they think, now let me get this statement, please. Here's the real fallacy in this whole thought process. Another problem is that somehow they think that not doing something is better than doing it with, without the right and pure motive. You hear what I just said? It's like, okay, how much more wrong is it? Is it wrong for you to do the right thing with the wrong motive? Or is it wrong for you to say, I don't have the right motive, so I'm just not going to do anything? Now, let me help you. Neither one of those are really right. But that seems to be the, the option that's being given. Which is better, to go soul winning and visiting until your heart gets right or stopping everything until your heart gets right? Let me help you. You stop everything, your, your heart probably never going to get right. Now, there is a possibility that you could just keep on going but I'm, I'm going to tell you, if, if you go long enough without getting your heart right about what you're doing, eventually you'll stop anyway. You know, it, you just, you'll play out, you'll burn out. But secondly, are you really sure your motives are always right? And, and you know, before we condemn, it would seem to me that it would be very prideful to do a work for God while condemning others for their reasons for doing the same thing. And the truth is, is that none of us really have pure motives about anything that we do. Now, I want to emphasize, you know, and I've heard it preached, you know, I don't care why you do it, just do it. You know, but God does care why you do it. It's very important why we do it. We need to, to always be checking our heart. We need to really say, Lord, I, I want to have the right heart about what I'm doing this. I want, I want to be trying to reach people because there really is a hell. I want to try to reach people because, God, you, you want me to. This is what you left me here to do. I want to do that, not for recognition or prestige or some award or something. I, I don't, that's not what I want to do. And, God, when that creeps in, I want to push it out. I want to get rid of it. I don't want that to, to come in here. So we should have the right attitude, but we, need, we also need to be very careful in the, in the movement of of. of Christianity today, it, it's almost like, okay, well, you know, you, a lot of people had the wrong attitude about it. A lot of people is about, you know, how, how, you know, always wanting to put out their numbers and always wanting to say they did this and be bigger than somebody else and do more than somebody else. Or I, you know, I, I I'm, uh, you know, I got the awards and they didn't listen. And so they just, they back away and say, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to live that way. So I'm not going to do that either. I'm not going to do the work. I'm not going to win the souls. That's not right. It's never, it's never right to let people go to hell. It's, it, okay, it, it's like this. You know, we'll have married couples, and they'll say, you know, we're splitting up. 
and it'll be it'll be better the kid for the kids if we if we divorce and now statistically it's never better but <clears throat> but it'll be better for the kids if we divorce so we so they so it won't be all these arguing constant arguing in the home the kids have to live with all this constant arguing so the best thing is for us to split up now watch this folks no the best thing would be to stop arguing right i mean it, 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 it seems so, you know, they make it seem so reasonable. Well, we, we just have to, we just have to split up because it's constant arguing and fighting in the home and it'd be better for our children not to be involved in all that all the time. I agree. It'd be better if they weren't involved in that. So stop doing it. But don't split up. So it's the same thing. Okay, it would be better to have the right motives. But I would say, keep doing the right thing and, and, and look, check your heart and keep the right motives also. And so, that's what God's really... So, the, uh, so this great movement of it must be from the heart, quote, it must be from the heart, just maybe a movement of pride itself, for they are the ones who do it right while the previous generation messed it all up in their pride. Now... This is all some philosophical things that that I'm talking about, but it leads us into chapter 3. Because it says in chapter 3, the question is asked in verse 1, what advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there in circumcision? So basically, I think the reason it's it's being answered or this has been posed is because probably at that moment the Jews are looking at Paul and saying, you know, well, well, wait a minute, you know, we are Jews, so what advantage? I mean, we're supposed to be above everybody else. What advantage is there for us in being a Jew? Or what profit is there in us being, kind of like today, well, what advantage is us for being a, in a Christian? What advantage is, is it us uh, to be a member of the church? Now, this is a question that many of the new generation does not recognize. God says that why do these things uh, what benefit is it to anyone to even to be a Christian, to be baptized, or how you're baptized, or to join a church, to visit, or invite others to church? What benefit is all these things that we do as a Christian? The answer comes in verse 2. For the Jew, and I think it still applies to us today as the Bible is alive and it, it applies today, it says much every way. What's the advantage? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. You know, God said, now, wait a minute, here's your advantage. It's not, it's not because you're better than everybody else. The advantage that you have is not because you're, you're circumcision. It's not because you're Jew. Your advantage you have is you've been given the word of God. You were given the word of God. You were entrusted with the word of God. And can I tell you, hey, folks, hold it up. Do you have it? We've been, we've been given the word of God. Now, I believe the Jews were supposed to do three things primarily with the Word of God. I think they were to protect the Word of God. And that's one of the things, you know, say, well, the Bible doesn't need to be protected. But I think we need to, to stand for the Word of God and not just let, let it just be washed away from us. But I think to protect the Word of God, I think they were to physically protect it. But the word there would be, I think they were there to preserve it. I think it was their responsibility to preserve the Word of God to be handed down to the next generations. I think it was also their, their responsibility to propagate the Word of God. And so God gave them the, the, 
you know, the Word of God to protect, to, to preserve, and to propagate. And that's what He's done with us today. All of this parallels Christianity today. We're, we're, we're not just supposed to have it. We're, we're supposed to protect it. We're supposed to preserve it. Don't let people tear it up. Don't let people change it. Don't let, you know, just don't, oh, well, whatever you want to have, whatever you want to read is fine. Uh, it's not. Uh, we need to, but more importantly, as they've said so many times, it's not how much of the Bible uh, that you read, it's how much, or, or that you know, it's how much of the Bible do you live. And, and how much of this do we propagate? How much do we take out to other people and, and live in such a way to try to help other people understand it? The Jews were given the very words of God, just as today the Christian has the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. And the Word of God is a spiritually written and understood book. No man without the Spirit of God can understand the words of God. And this is what God says, I gave you the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 through 14, it says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. You've heard of comparing Scripture with Scripture? I believe that's really where the principle comes. The most spiritual thing that you can compare with the most spiritual thing is Scripture with Scripture. It says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So, the, the scripture teaches us that you've got to have the Holy Spirit of God to understand the Word of God. God now has come and He's given it to us Christians. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He gave us the Word of God, but He also gave us the Holy Spirit to be able to understand the Word of God and to, to be able so that we understand that. Well, as it says, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches. You know, the, again, and I'm really kind of getting off the subject, but but the, the reason it's so important to stay consistent with the Bible that you have, the King James Bible that you have, is because so many versions, if not all versions, are in reality, they are tainted with what men say rather than what God said. Uh, they, they, it's just that they're not translations, they're interpretations, and, and they, they take and they put, Words and, and, and just also something you need to be very careful of. When you study words and define words, please be careful of what you study and where you get your definitions. But even then, compare Scripture with Scripture. Compare the context because of this. And, and, and I believe this with all my heart. I believe this. Somebody eventually wrote about it. And people think I say this because I read it. I really did. And I was told that somebody else wrote about it. I said it many years before. But because I was teaching a class about 25 years ago, and I went through and I studied out some words, and I defined those words in the class, and I had it in my class notes. About 20 years later, I, I, I lost and no misplaced them, so I started reading, you know, go back that same little passage of Scripture, and I redefined it, you know, went back through it and, and went through the definitions, but it kept seeming like something's not right. Then I found my original notes and found that the, the definitions had changed. Now, what had happened was, was the definitions had changed, but watch this, they changed to fit the new translations. 
So what, what they did, and I don't know this is absolutely true, this is one one person wrote, but that they said that they what they believe has happened is that the new translation came and put it, the words defined it this way, and so then the like Strong's and different things like that, they went and they took that word and now redefined the King James word with the word that was in the NIV or NASV. So you got to be careful as you look through definitions and you look through content. That's one of the reasons, and I challenge you to do this, one of the reasons I use the Webster's 1828. Reason, okay, it's closer to the original language uh, definitions. It's going to be closer. Language and meanings of the words didn't change that much from from basically 1769 to 1828. You're not going to have much change in the definition. So it's going to be really close in the definition. The other thing is, for it to be 1828 uh, dictionary, that means it can't be revised. You understand? If it's 1828 definitions, if you change those to modernize them, it's no longer 1828. And so... um, Again, so that was just a little sidebar, a little bit of note. You see, God wanted us to know and understand and obey the word of God as Christians, not use the heart or lack thereof as an excuse to do less. He was not saying to stop doing. He was saying to get your heart right about your doing. Do not stop because your heart struggles. If you're feeling like, why should I serve God? My heart is not right, so all my effort is not going to please God anyway, so might as well stop. This is ultimately pride and selfishness. Those who refuse to do anything until it is real in their hearts are simply saying that what they desire is more important than what God desires and even demands. That leads us to verse 3. Verse 3 says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect. In that verse, I want you to, there's a key word in that verse that I want you to notice. It's, then the word is of. Look at it, it says, for what if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Not faith in God without effect, faith of God. Now, here's what I believe it's saying. It's a very little word, but very important. This is not talking about our faith in God, but the faith of God. And by that I mean 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, God is faithful. God has faith. God is faithful. And it says, by whom ye are called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, for is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to, re- to repentance. Listen, the primary basis for this passage is addressing the Pharisee that does not truly believe in Christ at all, but has the outward appearance of holiness. This is not really directed toward the true Christian who may be struggling with why he's doing what he's doing. It's been a bit, really been a misused passage. Nevertheless, it is a good principle, and it's always good to check our hearts for our motives, uh, true motives behind what, why we're doing what we're doing. Even if some Jews did not believe, the scripture's saying, even if some Jews did not believe, God's word was still true. You may agree with that? Even if we don't believe it, God's word is still true. God had made a promise to the Jews, and he would keep this promise. Today, we must realize that whether we believe the, God, we believe the word of God or not, God is still true. 
And when he says in verse 4, God forbid, yea, let God be true and every man a liar as is written, thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Clearly this verse is stating that God is always right and if we disagree with God, we are wrong. This, it doesn't mean that everything man utters, he's a liar every time he utters his mouth. What, what the scripture is saying is that God, it says, yea, let God be true and every man a liar. What it's saying is that if you disagree with God, if you contradict God, you're a liar. Because God is true, and if you contradict God, you're a liar. Now, so if when... We speak, we agree with God, we will be justified in what we say. And look, see what it says. That thou mayest be, mightest be justified in thy sayings. So if we agree with God when we speak, as I preach tonight, and, and, uh, and again, I have to do this periodically, I'm not sure what hits me on Wednesday nights, but man, I feel terrible. But, uh, but if, I'm not, if I'm unclear, that. that but if, if I preach and if I teach the word of God and I agree with the word of God, God says, now you're true because God is true. He said, but if you contradict me, if you, you, uh, you go against what I'm saying, then you're a liar. He said, but if you'll tell the truth, if you will speak my words truthfully, he says that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings. He's saying uh, that if we will do that, then we... God will be justified in what we say, and we will prevail in judgment. We will not be judged by the lie that we were told. We will be, we'll prevail in judgment because we agreed with God, therefore we told the truth. Now, verse 5, it says, But if our unrighteousness commend the, the righteous of God, the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? Uh, now, what this is, is a, this takes a little bit more say, but this is a refutation of a philosophy that permeated the culture at that time. And it's actually been reborn again in recent times. And here's, in other words, here's what, they believe that if our sin and God's forgiveness proves the goodness of God, then it would be good to sin so that God can show himself great. This, of course, would make the unrighteous to judge us for our sin. It make it unrighteous to judge us for our sin. So uh, basically it comes down to if uh, what they were teaching, what they're believing, and what they're about to accuse Paul of is that uh, they're saying, look, that uh, it's good to do wrong. Because then now God gets to show himself good to you and merciful and kind to you. So God gets to prove himself in such a wonderful way. So if God is going to be glorified by your wrong, then you need to do more wrong. So wonderful concept, isn't it? Okay, but Paul says, God forbid. You know, I can just see him right now like saying, are you a fool? I mean, that's kind of like, God forbid. What are you talking? This is not who God is. God must judge sin. God is both a God of justice and righteousness. God is a God of mercy, but God's a God of justice also. He says in, in verse 7, says, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also just as a sinner? And this is where I think gives us the clue that this, they're accusing 
Paul of preaching this heresy. They're accusing Paul of, you know, because Paul has been going to talk about the grace and mercy of God and, and how God will forgive sin. And, but they're saying, Paul, uh, you, you're teaching that, that if you, you, know, you should sin more because that will be greater glory for God. You'll get to, God will get him to demonstrate himself greatly. The more you sin, the greater he can demonstrate himself. Therefore, it's good that you sin. And, and, and so they're accusing Paul of this, and Paul comes and says, for if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie, he's saying, then if, that's, if I'm lying like that, if, if God's truth hath more abounded through my lie unto my glory, why yet am I judged a sinner? He said, if I'm lying, God is true, and I'm lying, and I'm saying what you're accusing me of, he said, then how come God judges me as a sinner? You see, Paul knew that, that when he sinned, and, and what this world doesn't understand, Paul knew that when you, when you do wrong, you come into earthly judgment. Again, not eternal hell for your sin because it had already been cleansed, but you come into judgment for sin on this earth. And Paul knew that. And he said, he said, so explain that to me, basically. He says, and not rather as we be slanderously reported as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. He's saying, you know what? And basically, Paul just gets really frustrated with him. He's saying, why do we have any judgment at all of sin? I mean, God was going to make us sin. He wants us to sin so he can be glorified. And then he's going to judge us for our sin? And Paul's just looking at him and saying, how stupid can you people be? But sadly, that's kind of where we are. And I'm done. I'm going to let you go. Um, But it it seems here that Paul had been accused of this fallacious teaching that sin glorified God because more sin gave more opportunity for God to forgive. But what happens today in Christianity, this has in many ways been resurrected. And this is the danger that I see out of it. And I, I think it's wonderful to, to go through the scripture and kind of dissect it, what was historically going on, what was taking place at that moment. But I also believe every bit of scripture is profitable for us today. So I'm going to try to make a little direct application, something that's to be concerned about. Today in Christianity, this has been many ways re- resurrected. Today it's phrased like this, God loves and accepts you just like you are. There's no need to change for he is a God of love, and he accepts you like you are. To be a loving God, he could not condemn you for whatever you do. This is basically saying that God is allowed to demonstrate his love in a greater way when we come as we are and as we stay as we are. The fallacy is still found in the truth that we will soon see in the following verses that sin brings judgment, the judgment of God. And, and it's just this, I heard it the other day, this fellow, and I'm sure he's a good guy, he's trying hard, but he said, he said this, he, he was going through about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he took a passage of scripture, and I just taught on Sunday school class, but you know, you got to take all scripture and compare it together, so you have to go to every passage that talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. There's one passage in, uh, boy, my mind started, Ezekiel, I believe, that, um, and that describes that, that they, you know, 
punishment came because they, they weren't hospitable, basically, what it comes down to. They didn't take care of the needy. They didn't feed the hungry. They didn't do things like that. And so if you take that one little portion out, it looks like it had nothing to do with homosexuality, had nothing to do with fornication, had nothing to do with all the debauchery and all the abominations. Now, Jude clearly tells us they suffer the vengeance of a, you know, hellfire, you know what I mean? <laughs> Eternal fire uh, because of the abominations. But, but this fellow took that one little passage and he said, see, what God's saying that the reason they were destroyed is because they weren't kind and good and loving to everyone. And basically, he made his, he made his you know, two or three minutes of his statement, and then he came to the end and he said, he said, so folks, look, basically he said, it really doesn't matter how you live as long as you love each other. And that's where, that's the big thrust today. But it, look, is love important? Well, if we don't have love, everything that we do is like sounding brass and tinkly cymbals. It's a waste of time. But if you truly love God and love others, you're going to live according to his word as best you can. And it's going to be important to live according to his word. You can't just say, well, God, you love me, so since you love me, I can do anything. Well, then you don't love him. You may say you do, but you really don't. So, all right, thank you for being patient with me tonight. I'm going to have a word of prayer. God bless you, uh, and we'll get out of here. Father, thank you so much for...